Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And just remember, I'm as hip as my guest. And I got to tell you something, people. My Alexa has been acting weird. I don't know what it is, though, because sometimes I listen to a local sports radio and I tell her to be quiet. And she thanks me and says goodbye. And sometimes she just completely ignores me. So I don't know if it's just she's in a crappy mood or it's me. But I got to get to the bottom of this because it irritates me when she's rude. Anyway. We have a great show today. The gentleman today is a uh, great guitarist and songwriter. His name is Derry Graham. He's uh, from the group Honeymoon Suite. But he's currently, he's recording a new album with my friend Rich Redman, who actually did that intro. So how are you doing, Derry? I'm good. I'm good. How are you, man? Good. How did you know, how did you hook up with Rich? Because I'm going to talk about your career, but this is something you're recording an album. And how did you end up hooking up with him? Because he's out of Nashville. You're originally from Canada, and then you're living in Illinois. How did that all happen? Well, Rich, Rich has partnered up with um, um, a guy named Mike Crumpus, and they've started this new label called 1225 Entertainment in Nashville. Um, Mike is a friend of mine because he's from Canada. He's from Toronto. And uh, I've been kind of keeping in touch with him over the last few years, just, you know, working together and um, actually going to his studio with my daughter to record because she's a singer-songwriter. So when they started the when him and Rich started the label, Mike said, "Send me some uh, Honeymoon Suite stuff because he's a huge fan of our band." And um, one thing led to another. He says, "I you know I love the new new stuff. Why don't you guys come down to, to Murfreesboro and uh, make a record with me and Rich?" So there we are, and that's what we're doing. That's awesome. Now it's funny. Now you said your daughter is a singer songwriter. How old is she? She's seventeen. Uh, her name is Leah Marlene. And, uh, yeah, yeah, she's got a wonderful voice. I know I'm her dad and all, but uh, she really does have, have a talent. And um, we're, we're kind of encouraging that. She loves it. And she's looking at going to a school in Nashville next year. So uh, this whole thing is kind of working out nicely because we'll I'll probably be moving there in a year or so. Well, now, you encouraged her to be in music because, you know, you were also in music and it's something she liked. When did you get involved in music? I read somewhere that you started at piano, I believe. But when did you start playing music? And was your family musically inclined? Was there an influence in your household? Yeah, um, my dad was a uh, played the played the piano. He he was a doctor, but when he would come home at night, we had this beautiful uh, full size grand piano in the living room, and. Uh, he loved the classics, and he'd come home at night and play Beethoven and Tchaikovsky, and that's all I heard when I was a little kid. I used to lay under the piano and listen to it, and it was wonderful. So that's where you know that's where it started. A lot of classical, and then uh, I, you know, I did take you know all the kids had to take piano lessons. So I didn't like it, but it was good because I learned to read music. And then when I got a little older, when I was eleven, I discovered the guitar. I heard "Smoke on the Water," and uh, I had to play guitar. You know what's funny about that is because I I have no musical talent I I suck and uh, but I remember taking guitar lab in high school and that was the one song you wanted to learn Smoke in the Water or you wanted to learn uh, Heartbreaker by um, Led Zeppelin. Mm, yes, the the best riffs in the world. I know, seventies rock man. It was just. Um, I love piano, but you can't jump around the stage with a piano, you know. It's, the guitar was just infinitely cooler. Now, was it easy, since you could already read music, as you said, was it easier you to pick up guitar? Did you feel like you were picking it up faster than you may have picked up piano because you were already versed in the whole musical experience? Yeah, it, it was. I mean, I could relate to music on a page, and things made more sense to me. So to go from piano to learning a G, A, and D chord wasn't that hard, you know. And when you really have a passion for it and you, you want to learn, it's like you can't put it, I couldn't put it down, you know. So you're, you start to play and you're getting good. Now, when do you start forming your first band? Was it in high school? Did you sit there and say, I really want to do this, I want to get a band going because it's just cool and girls dig it and I'm good at it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I wasn't, you know, I was a little kid in high school, so I wasn't playing no sports. So music was the thing. And you find your guys, you know, yes, in high school, we, 
I couldn't wait to put a little band together. I met a drummer and a bass player. We started playing in the basement, doing the variety shows at the high school. And it was just so cool to do that for me anyways. I just, once I got bitten by that, I just, yeah, started, started bands in high school and tried to play wherever we could. Now, what was the reaction? Like, you know, I, like what songs were you playing? Because I think you're a little older than me. And so what songs were you guys playing? In high school, were you playing rock and roll, the stuff that people wanted to hear? Or what were you jamming to? Were you playing Hendrix? Were you playing Kiss? Or what were you playing? No, um, I mean, I like those bands, but we'd be playing stuff like uh, Bad Company and BTO, Nazareth, stuff like that. Um, originally, you know, in the earlier bands, whatever was easiest to play, a little bit of Zeppelin. And then later on in my teens, when I got in a little better band, it was more progressive, but still, you know, doing stuff like Kansas, but also doing Sticks and Journey and stuff like that. So you, you, you got the bug, but now your father's a doctor, as you said. And I'm sure he wanted you to go to college. How do you explain to your parents that you want to be a musician and how did they react? Yeah, well, he wasn't too happy. But, um, you know, it's, it's, as long as, you know, I kept up, uh, kept up the lessons. He said he'd buy me a guitar, but that kind of backfired on him. So, um, you know, I just kept doing it all through high school. I never said I want to be a musician the rest of my life. I just knew that I loved to do it. And uh, I'm sure he would have preferred I go to medical school or whatever, but I just wasn't interested in that. Now, you went to college for music production, right? Yeah, I went to college uh, in in London, Ontario. There was a recording course there, and that was so perfect for me. You know, uh, I just loved it. That's where I wrote uh, New Girl now, many years ago when I was in that course. So you wrote it in a course... How did you write it, and did you think when you actually wrote it, it would become such a hit at what has been? No, and this was several years before Honeymoon Suite. It was just one of the many songs that you know, I was just starting to write, and um, I was really influenced by uh, The Cars' uh, first and second. The Cars had just come out with their first and second albums around that time, and I love them. I love Elliot Easton and that whole style of playing. So New Girl Now was kind of a ripoff of that style, if you listen to the riff. But um, that's what it was like. And it was just one of those songs I wrote in my kitchen. And uh, it probably only took half an hour. And it was done. Songs are funny like that. Well, I was going to ask you, you know, you said that one took a half an hour. And there's probably ones that you labored over forever that you never actually finished but i mean when you sit down and when you as you say for that that song it took a half an hour how what is the process that made it take so short just that it just all clicked simultaneously and you went holy crap this is just my song's done and what's the difference between a song like that and then when you sit there and you, you labor over a song for a while i know well it's, some of them are like that they just come through you and like the simple ones if you're just thinking simply and you have a basic idea you're playing one part and then a melody pops into your head for the the b section and then the chorus and you just kind of mumble some words and then make sense of them i mean it took more than half an hour but i think the germ of it was you know done in under an hour and then you go back and you refine it but i wish they could all be like that but sometimes they're they're a little more difficult but sometimes they're easy. And I never thought much of that song. I thought it was okay. And I kind of shelved it for a while. But when I got in Honeymoon Suite, it, <clears throat> I brought it to Johnny. And he said, oh, I, I got to sing that song. Now, how did Honeymoon Suite form? You weren't one of the original members, right? No. Okay, so so were they a popular, were they getting popular? Or were they just trying to put a band together? What was your What was your path to joining them? Well, um, Johnny had already started the band. He's from Niagara Falls, Ontario, so that's where the name Honeymoon Suite came from. I had grown up right next to Niagara Falls, and Johnny and I played in different bands around the area, but we never knew each other till we both lived in Toronto. Then about six months after Johnny started the band, his guitar player left, and through a mutual, uh, our booking agent that I knew, he knew me, and he knew Johnny was looking for a guitar player, so he just put us together, and I went out for an audition, and, you know, the light bulb went off when I heard Johnny sing. 
because I knew I had some songs, but you got to have a singer too. So I knew there that we got the germ of something really that could be really good. Now, was it not 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 the word hard, but was it uh, awkward for you at first to sit there and you're joining this band and then you're pitching songs? Did they have their own repertoire? And were the other band members thinking, who's this new guy who's coming in and bringing us new material? No, not really, because Johnny, I mean, he started the band with just a, a collection of players just to go out and play. So at the time that I came in, he kind of, a lot of them had left, and he was kind of reforming the group from the ground up again. So I had the songs, I mean, he had some originals, but they were okay, but I don't think they were as strong as the ideas that I was coming in with, not you know, not to say they were great, but I just think they were more, more farther along than, than the stuff that they had. So after Johnny and I decided to work together, then we, we put the rest of the band together. I brought in Dave Betts, who was a friend of mine from college. I'd played with him before. So we kind of formed it from both of us, the people that we knew, we, we put it together and built it from there. Now, you put it together, what is the music scene in Canada, in that area at the time? Was there a lot of was there a lot of work for you guys to have that you could look forward to, or was it something that there wasn't, there was a lot of cover bands? What was going on in that area when you guys were first getting together? There's cover bands, man. Like, Honeymoon Suite was a cover band when it started. At that time, in, in up in Ontario, um, especially, uh, there was a lot of clubs and bars up in the northern part of Ontario, and you'd go do what they call a six-nighter. You had to play cover songs, and you'd go up to some godforsaken hotel in the north, and you'd stay there for a week, and you'd do a six-nighter. So there was actually work. You could work week after week as long as you played cover songs, which we did, but we wanted to get a deal so Along the way, we started inserting a few originals into the set. And if the bar owner didn't catch on, then we kept doing it. <laughs> That's the perfect way to do it. Because, you know, most people, I think, when you go to see music, it's funny now that you see bands. I just saw Joe Jackson, and he did a Steely Dan cover. And I saw the Jim Blossoms, and they did a Radiohead cover. So a lot of times now, people who go to see bands, the band will do a cover. And people, if they're enjoying music, really don't care. They're not going to get... You know, it's not going to be sitting there go, oh, my God, Honeymoon Suite just did a song we never heard of. That's what's funny about some of these club owners. It's just like people are having fun. They just want to hear live music. Yeah. Yeah. Well, a little bit like back then, we just did it so we could eat. That was the only way a band could work is if you're out there playing Flock of Seagulls and Billy Idol and Genesis and stuff. But, you know, it's. In a way, it's good because I learned a lot of other people's songs, and it taught me about songwriting, and it made a made us a good band. Like unlike today, we were a real band. We went on the road, we ate crappy food, and stayed in lousy places, and we rehearsed when we could. But those kind of things build character, and uh, it made us more of a band, and that kind of helped us later. So as you're as you're working and doing these these night runs and things like that. When, how do you start to pursue getting a record deal? I mean, you were playing some of your original songs, but did you have the idea you wanted to get in the studio? Because if you went into the studio, then you wouldn't be able to do the cover gigs, and then you would be probably starving. Yeah, no, it was always, once I got with Johnny, we were focused on um, taking this band, you know, to the next level to get a deal and get in the studio. So what happened with us, there was a radio station in Toronto called Q107 at the time. <clears throat> uh, it's still going today. But back then they had this thing called the Homegrown Contest every year. And local bands would send in their tapes and they'd have a winner and you get a bunch of prizes. So we did a demo of New Girl Now on one of our Sundays off. We, we played someplace, finished Saturday, drove home on Sunday, recorded the demo and then we went Monday back up to another freaking hotel somewhere. And it won that year. People just loved it when it got on the radio. So long story short, the labels started, to, all the Toronto labels, you know, started to come around. And we had a manager at that point. And we started to gain momentum. And that led us to get getting signed with um, 
with Warner's in Canada, and then after that with Warner Brothers in in L.A. So, so when you get signed, do they have a blueprint of what you have to do, or do you you have new girls? So they're probably going to keep that now. They're going to keep that song. But did they sit there and say, okay, we need this many songs from you, and were you guys ready, or did you have to write some more songs for that first album? Bit of both. It was like. You know, like getting from where we came from and then getting a record deal was like, holy shit, this is, you know, this is great. This is a dream come true. But now everybody's looking at Dairy, Dairy, now we need, you know, 10 songs. <laughs> but we, I did have a bunch because I had a long time leading up to that. And I was lucky because we had four or five singles off that album. And I just was lucky that I, we had a bunch of songs ready to learn. And then I had to write a few more. And then we went in the studio and recorded it in two weeks. And that was the album. No, so two weeks. So how long were your days? I always think, because, you know, you sit there, are you there day and night? Because it seems like a very quick time to record 10 songs with everything that goes into it. I mean, what were your guys' days like when you were in the studio? That was great. Well, it shouldn't take, honestly, if you if you got your shit together, it shouldn't take more than two weeks, even by today's standards. If you do enough rehearsing in pre-production in a rehearsal hall you go in the studio you do your what they you know the bed tracks which should only take about three days if you got it together to do the drums and bass bang that out and then do your overdubs your vocals your keyboards if you're in there the days are long they're eight ten twelve hour days whatever you go till you can't go anymore until you know you're too tired then you come back the next day but we worked pretty intensely, but we had that that energy, you know, that excitement. So it's okay. So so you you sit there, you get you get done the album. Now does the label now say we're going to put you on tour? You're going to go out and open. What is the what is their process to get you guys to get that album out to people? Well, at that time, um, I mean, they were really excited when they heard the first you know, copy the first tracks off off the album. The Canadian label loved it. So they were ready to, it was a major label, so they were ready to just plug it into their whole distribution system. Radio loved New Girl Now right off the top. And you have to remember, this is at the dawn of MTV and much music in Canada. So we were so lucky to be right at the forefront of that. Cause all of a sudden you can do videos. And that did wonders for our career and many other bands of that era, because it just skyrocketed you from, you know, obscurity to all of a sudden everybody knows what you look like and they're watching your videos. So that that was really tremendous in Canada for us to get our videos on Much Music. And then it led us to getting our deal, getting signed to Warner's in the States. They sent a bunch of A&R people up to see us at a club in Toronto, signed us there. And then our video is, I mean, our album is out in the U.S., and our videos on MTV. So when it happened, everything kind of happened fast over the course of a few months. As far as touring goes, that changed pretty quickly. We didn't have to do six-nighters anymore. All of a sudden, we're doing more opening slots in Canada. And then the craziest thing was our first tour was opening for Jethro Tull in America for like two, three months. And all of a sudden, we're on a tour bus driving through America, playing arenas every night. Crazy. That must be amazing. It's funny because I just had Martin Barr on a few weeks ago, and he said, you know, they constantly toured. And it must have been amazing because, as you said, it, it was sort of that meteoric rise because, you know, people now don't understand the the importance of a video. And, and I, I was around when MTV first started, and I loved it. And I remember all those videos. And it, it was one of those things where if you didn't hear of a band – you saw them, and then if you liked the song, it would just, you'd want to go see them at a concert. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when I grew up in the 70s, there weren't videos. You heard everything was on the radio and your albums, so you had this kind of mysterious vision of what the band kind of looked like. You might have seen them on TV, but video changed all that. All of a sudden, you're in this little mini movie, and you get to a town, and there's a whole bunch of girls already lining up around the block at the record store because you're kind of like a little movie star too, you know. It just makes you, I don't know, bigger than than you are. It it really was a career 
a career helper having you know the video component of it. Well, for the New Girl Now video, did you guys have a say in what happened? Because I know a lot of times people say they don't have a say, and then they do, and then as the song gets bigger, then the the company, the record company, is sending you a, a director that's more pricey, and it all comes out of your guys' pockets. I mean, what was your yeah. take on the? I mean, that's what cracks me up. Like you know, people say, "Oh, we had a great hit," and then all of a sudden. We have, you know, David Fincher, who used to correct, uh, direct videos, coming in, and we pay for that. As a band, as guys who are working their asses off, did that throw you off that all of a sudden the videos are helping you, but it's coming out of your pocket? Yeah, well, that's just the way it was. I mean, everything was recoupable. And the first few videos, we we had control. We were 100% involved in the concept and meeting with directors through management and the label and everything. Everybody was like down with like, you know, we all liked what was going on. So we went with it. But as time went by and subsequent albums, of course, budgets get a lot bigger and you got to keep up with the Joneses. So if ZZ Top comes out with this video with all these crazy effects, then you better have some effects in your video if you want to compete. But that's going to push it over $100,000 for that video. And the labels at that time were happy to give you that money, but it was all recuperable, you know? So, now I got to ask you, I always ask my guests this, and you had, you were in Canada and the U.S. Do you remember the first time you heard your song on the radio in both Canada and the U.S.? Yeah, yeah, I, I do. Um, right, right when the first album came out, we were still touring around in a, actually a station wagon, and we were driving out to eastern Canada. We'd been driving like eight, ten hours, and we just pulled into the town and turned the radio on, and New Girl Now started playing. And it was like such a, th a thrill, you know, to to hear this album that you recorded a couple months before. All of a sudden, it, it became a reality. It's like, holy shit, the label did their job. It's actually on the radio now. <laughs> um, in the States, I can't remember where... Um, I heard it on the radio, but one of the first shows we did early on was opening for Quiet Riot somewhere in Pennsylvania. And we went out to a bar after the show, and I was sitting there at the bar having a drink, and the TV was on over the bar with MTV, and lo and behold, the New Girl Now video comes on. And I'm like, holy shit, we're from Canada, and look, there's our video up there. <laughs> What is the feeling that goes through you, though? It must be the most euphoria. It is, man. It's like something you work really hard for for a long time, and then all of a sudden you've got management, you've got label, you've got all these, this whole team behind you pushing for it and, and making it a reality. So it's a, it's a great feeling when that happens. So the first album does well, and now you have to come back with the second album. As a writer because you do the primary, primary writing, what goes through your mind? Do you want to think that you have to keep the same sound, or does your mind say, I have a different thing? I mean, how does that work? Because you want to follow up with a, a, a great album, but sometimes you might want to go a different way, which the record company wouldn't want. Yeah. Well, that's the oldest story in the book, it, you know, the sophomore album or whatever. And I mean, the first record was great. Um it had this youthful energy to it and these great songs, but the second album had to be way better. Um, so, of course, I started going crazy and writing as much as I could, and we got really lucky because we found Bruce Fairburn and uh, Bob Rock out in Vancouver who were available, and what uh, what a blessing that was to work with those two guys it was just one of those things where everything came together and the songs were, were there and the production was there and they, the album came out sounding so good. Now, when you're writing it, are you just, did you have the confidence saying, you know what, this is a good follow-up or is there a little bit of a doubt in your mind because it's such a big process that you have to take care of? Yeah. Oh, it's scary, man. It's like all of a sudden you're, you're, you were nobody, but now you've sold, you know, you know, you've gone triple platinum in, in your own country and you sold several hundred thousand in the States. So it's like, yeah, it is a little scary. You don't want to fail. So I just, I don't know. 
I had a lot of ideas and, and we started working with more people. And again, we're working with Bruce Fairburn, who was a real song guy. He kind of guided me through my ideas saying, this is really strong. Work on that one. This one here is, you know, not so good. So you, we had, I had a lot of support. Now you're touring. Now, what was your, after the first album and coming to the second one, were you headlining in Canada, but opening down here? I mean, or was, were you headlining down here at smaller clubs or what, how was your touring life going to promote your albums? Well, we were headlining in Canada pretty much off the bat or not long after the record came out, we would do clubs, but then we could move up into smaller theaters and, and hockey arenas. The, the United States, we would support. We would do, we did Jethro Tull, 38 Special, um, all kinds of tours. And then if we had a day off, we would go headline a local club, like a concert club or a small theater. So that's that's where we were at at that time. Now, does it get taxing after a while when you're on the road? I mean, because, you know, you went in the studio, then you have to go on the road. What does that do to your mental, your mental capacity and just your body? Because... You're not really, you're not sleep. It's like you're, I know you probably sleep on the bus. It's not like you You have normal hours. How do you keep yourself sane during those tours? <laughs> I don't know, lots of beer, I guess. <laughs> I, I don't know. It's like you, yeah, until you've lived on a bus and done an arena tour for three months, you just, you just don't know. You're just living in this bubble. And, you know, we were a bunch of young guys and mostly single, so we were having the time of our lives, probably drinking a little too much, but all of a sudden we're all these places in America and meeting all these new people. Um, you know, it, things got a little little crazy here and there, but, I mean, it was the 80s, man. Everybody was pushing things to the limit, you know, if you think back. But at the same time, I was smart enough to know that this was, at the end of the day, it's a job, I mean, all the guys in the band, we had our fun, but it was really important to us when we got on stage for our 45 minutes that we needed to kick ass and be a good band. So we didn't mess that up. Now, you also, some of your music was featured in One Crazy Summer and an episode of Miami Vice. Now, I know you're the writer for that. Did you really care where it got placed because you were getting paid for it? I mean, what was the process? Did they just come to you and say, hey, man, we're going to put this song in, in One Crazy Summer, we're going to put this on Miami Vice, or did you have a say if you didn't really want it to be in one of those shows? Hell no. I'm like, that's that's to me as a writer, that was a real compliment that not only you know we could put our albums out and get on the radio, but that somebody would want the song for a, a movie or a TV show. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's wonderful, you know? I mean, outside, yeah, there's a few dollars to be made, but it's more like, for me, a real a real thrill to to see that that would come like i said earlier we're on warners in in la but uh through their movie division and we also had a great publisher down there that's how those things uh come through they they get contacted they they work your catalog and then they would call me up and say um they want what does it take for this movie are you cool with that and i'm, I'm like hell yeah so you're going good. You have the two good albums, and you you go to L.A. to record your third album. And Johnny D gets, I mean, he got hit by a car at LAX. Yeah, yeah. Which blows my mind because I lived in I lived in L.A. for 17 years, and I, I know people drive like assholes in LAX. So you sit there and go, you know, even though they know it's pedestrians, they just drive like idiots. What uh, what did that do to the band at that time? Well, we're just we pretty much finished up all the tracks for racing after midnight it was right near the end of the record and johnny went to pick up his girlfriend at lax and he walked out in front you know from behind a bus and a lady didn't see him anyways not good thank god he's okay but it kind of put a damper on things because he he broke it pretty bad and had to go back to toronto and have some surgeries but he came back about a week later with a cast on and was doing this his final vocals on crutches in the studio getting the vocals done so we took it in stride um and he just we just kind of worked around it you know we we shot a video and he had a broken leg but you never knew it so we just kind of you know pushed through now as a band you know once again you probably you could probably go on the road again after you come out with an album but with him in a cast 
it w- that probably wasn't feasible. No, well, it was at the end of the album, so we probably had a couple of months before we went out on tour. So I think that, um, I can't even remember now, but I think he had time to, to heal the leg and get some pins put in and probably go to a smaller cast by the time we went out. I don't think he actually went out on stage with the cast on. I think we waited till that came off. Now, Michael McDonald, how did you get involved with him? Ted Templeman was producing uh, the third album. And as you know, he you know worked with the Doobies, and uh, he knew Michael really well. We had one song that I just could not finish. I couldn't get the right lyric for it. I was getting pretty frustrated, and Ted said to me one day, well, listen, Michael, Michael McDonald's a great lyricist. Do you mind if I send the track over to him, see if he can do anything with it? So he did, and Michael had it for one night. He came, came in the studio the next day and sang it, sang a vocal on it, and... Next thing you know, Johnny was cutting the vocal, and I was out with Michael singing the background vocals with Michael McDonald. Go figure. That must be an awesome feeling, because, you know, he has one of those voices that everybody knows. And I remember seeing the Doobie Brothers, and I've seen documentaries about the Doobie Brothers, that he's just this amazing musician. But as an artist that, you know, and you like, you've liked rock and roll all your life, it must be just one flattering and two you must be taken on back saying this guy has enough respect and enjoys what i do that he'll spend time with me and write with me yeah right exactly it's you know i remember when he came walking in the studio i didn't believe it till he walked in the door and of course i knew who he was and his voice and his writing and you know doobies and all that and i'm just like in you know inside you know under my breath i'm saying this is cooler than shit but at the same time, he's just another songwriter, and I learned from him, and he was the greatest guy, and we do, we got to work, and we, we got it done. You know, just It was just fun. It was very cool. Now, how did the third album do in America, and how did it do in Canada? It did not. We were hoping, like the second album, the big prize, did great in the States, but unfortunately, the Racing After Midnight record, it wasn't the breakthrough album that, that we wanted in the U.S. I don't, you know, I'm not going to to blame anybody i just think that maybe it didn't have the right songs maybe it didn't have that huge breakthrough single but um it did okay got a you know pretty good push from the label and a fair amount of airplay but it didn't do what of course we wanted it to do in canada it did great it went trip you know double triple platinum and we did a huge tour up there with it we went over to europe with it and supported status quo on a tour and and saga but the U.S., no, it didn't, unfortunately, get to where we needed it to go. So what do you, what goes through your mind when that happens? I mean, you're popular everywhere. You know, everyone loves it. You had popularity in the first two. Was it because the music scene was changing here, too? Or what do you think the, some of the impacting uh, reasons are for that? I don't know. I think that, you know, as a writer, I'll blame myself. I just, uh, you know, we didn't have uh, Living on a Prayer or You Give Love a Bad Name or some some huge kind of single like that, which is what we we needed. Because don't forget, Bruce Fairburn, right after he did our record, he did the Bon Jovi. uh, He did Slippery with Bon Jovi, and we all know what happened with that one. So that's what you're competing with at that time, those kind of singles, those huge and I just don't think we had that that song, but I did my best at the time, and that's just the way it goes. And then around '91, two guys of the band left. Um, yes, after after that, we kind of, you know, I think everybody was, you know, the old story. We just we were burned out. We done three albums and tours, and you know, we kind of wanted to to change things up and and reassess things so um dave and gary left because we thought that it would be better if we maybe we got a new rhythm section and took a different direction and you know you learn you learn from these things and we did the next record which is monsters under the bed with a couple of uh a new rhythm section and that in itself is a great album it's a little more mature sounding but it's not like the earlier honeymoon stuff so looking back you know, I, I don't know. I wouldn't change anything because it's brought me to where I am today. But these are just the things you do, you know. Now, as a songwriter, 
you know, you said it's more mature. Do you know when you're writing something that comes across more mature? Because your life has changed. You know, you're you're older now. You've had the uh, success. Does that does that have an influence on your songwriting style and the, the maturity as you get older? Change what you want to write about. I would like to think so. I mean, you have to walk. You have to be on the fence. Between you have to keep the honeymoon sweet brand, but you can't be writing dumb songs that you you know about you know hooking up and stuff that you were you know that uh, that a twenty one year old would sing. Yet at the same time, you can't be writing real serious stuff because that's not your band. So it's it's about being clever and it's yeah keeping it interesting. If you're going to write a love song, then put an interesting slant on it. Or if you're going to write a song about life, just make it. You know, at the end of the day, something that people can sing along to. Simple is better. Don't, to me, don't get too complicated. Don't, don't outright, you know, your audience. You've got to understand your brand. Just be clever and write a great melody and and do a, a, a lyric that's somewhat intelligent and not really stupid. <laughs> now, when you there was a long layoff between the the album Monsters on the Bed and your next one. What did you do in that time frame? Were you still going on tour? Were you writing for other people? Were you writing for yourself? Where did you find yourself in your career at that moment? Oh, man. It was when the 90s uh, came along, when Nirvana hit and the plaid shirts and the Seattle sound, it pretty much killed all the 80s bands. And any 80s band will tell you this, you know. Um, it was It was a tough time because the business it completely changed and you know what it's that's the way it is in the music business it's it goes in cycles like that so there were some lean years we managed to Johnny and I managed to stay together but we didn't play many shows for several years in the 90s but the band we always kept together and always you know we're writing and recording stuff but we had to you know step back quite a ways you know when the 90s hit it was it was tough well now you know when did you start incorporating johnny more in the writing because in the beginning it seemed like it was mostly you in the early days when did that happen was that just through your friendship and the matter of a mutual trust that you sat there and you guys just said we gotta start doing this together yeah yeah more or less i think johnny wasn't writing so much in the earlier days i think he just started to get into it in the last little while stepping up more and and making you know making the songs more his own uh, putting more of his lyrical um influence into it and you know writing is a it's, at the end of the day it's a job so you have to have the the discipline to do it and i think johnny's become much more disciplined in sitting down and, and working on the songs trying to make them good well, you know, you said that you had those lean years. When you guys went back in the studio after being 10 years away, 11 years actually, what was that like when you got into the studio? Did you feel that magic again? Did you have to get acclimated again? And were you nervous because you were coming out with something new and your fans wanted to hear it after a long time? Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm i always happy when I'm in the studio writing and recording whatever um I don't know, you do, to me, Annette, when a band puts out an album, it's kind of a snapshot of where they are at that time. I only know that if I get a chance to make a record, I'll write the best music that I can at that time in my life, whatever's influencing me, and put that out and see what happens with it. Now, when did you start picking up steam again where you could start performing live? What year was that, and what do you think was the reason why that happened. Did you guys, that we, the music was back in demand? Yeah, I think, well, probably in the last 10 years or so, you've seen the resurgence of melodic rock. I think once the 90s was over, people wanted to to feel good again because there was, that music was so dark and down in the, in the 90s. I think people wanted to hear melodies again, and that's why everybody kind of went back to the the 80s music, which was fun to listen to and so melodic. So a lot of the 80s bands reformed or, or came back together, and the market, you know, they, they started doing business at, 
at the box office, so to speak, and and to, and people were, you know, coming out to the shows. So, I I think the resurgence of that sound it kind of really benefited us, and you know, things have gone it's been going on an upward kind of trajectory for us for the last little while, thank God. So yeah, so you're getting out there and people are missing you, I'm sure. Canada's probably like, thank God we're back. Have you been have you been breaking ground in the States now? Or are you still in that same predicament that you oh, were where you're big in Canada and not as big in the States? Yeah. Oh, it's so frustrating because I live in the U.S. and I'm, people are messaging me and asking me all the time, uh, when are you going to come, you know, to Dallas? When are you going to come to Cleveland? We miss you here in Seattle and all this stuff. And we're, I'm constantly wor- working on that to play more in the U.S. I love playing in the States, but it's, it's tough to get, you know, you have to get a promoter who's willing to get behind the band or put you on the right, the right bill um, down here. So, it's it's an ongoing process, and I'm trying my best to to get on some tours and to play down here more. Because I know if we did, people are never disappointed. It's just where our profile has is not. You know, people don't remember the band; they remember the songs, but not the band. So we have to build that back up again. In Canada, we do fairs and festivals all over the place in the summer, and that's always good. People haven't forgotten, and we still get a ton of airplay there. So, yeah, working on it. Now you live in Illinois. Your wife's in Illinois. How did you How did you meet your wife? Was it music involved? Was it something to do with music? Yeah, it was. One of the tours we did in the '80s was opening for Heart. Um, around 86 or 87 on the uh, when our big prize record was out. And we'd come through town, actually, Peoria, Illinois. Um, and I was, at, I was actually at a record store <laughs> in the afternoon. You know, we were doing a kind of meet and greet thing, and she was there. Um, she was working there, or, or no, she came with a friend of a friend, and, you know, we just kind of met. And uh, she came out to the show that night, and we kind of kept in touch. And the rest is history. Now, you're working with Rich, as we talked about. When you went to Nashville, how has the music changed now? Has the music scene changed? Is it much easier to make a record? Because, you know, you knew Rich's friend, who was his partner. Was that a lot easier than it was back in the day to get a record deal? Or is it sort of the same? Oh, man, it's it's so different now. Um, it's, it's I think it's hard to get a record deal i i feel you know i think it'd be tough for a, a young band these days because back in our day you could get signed if you were good enough because all the labels were looking to sign a band and you get a budget and and everything else but today it's it's so different and a lot of bands are just doing things on their own and kind of financing on their own or trying to find money somewhere so those those days of big budgets are gone um, with, with Rich, it's just like kind of luck that we, we kind of, I knew Mike and Mike was working with Rich and Rich is an amazing drummer. So, um, a singer and I, we went down and met with them and we just got in the studio and started banging some things out. And this situation worked out good. You got to remember a lot of people are recording at home now and, and they've got home studios. So, you don't have to pay $1,200 a day for a big studio to record. Now, the songs on this new album, and I still call it an album because I'm old school, what can people expect? Where where are they coming from? Are they a harder sound? Are they a softer sound? Are they a deeper sound? What do you, what will your fan, will your fans be excited when they hear it, do you think? Oh, I think they're going to love it because if you listen if you listen to our our honey, earlier honeymoon sweet albums i like to use the word variety because we have a sound and but on our records there's a bit of everything it's not just hard rock all the way through there's a bit of this fast slow some ballads some different kind of songs i like a variety on a record which is why i always love queen so many different things going on but this one's like that. I tend to write 
my songs are kind of guitar oriented because in America they like it a little harder edged, but still, you know, with a good melody. And then Johnny's coming in with some more mellower kind of melodic things. And we're working on, we've got 11 songs done and they're all kind of a little bit different, all different flavors. And I think that's good for me anyways. That's kind of our brand. Now, when you have the songs you want to put on the disc, who decides on the sequence? Because that's always a big thing to me, you know, and probably for you too, growing up listening to music, just you remember what side one is of certain albums. You remember side huh. two of Led Zeppelin four. Yeah, right. Who who is going to do that, or is that are you going to do that with Rich and and a bunch of you guys? Are you just going to sit there and go, here's how we think it flows the best. Huh. Yeah, I know the sequence, and then finding the name of the album. I think, yeah, there'll be some fisticuffs and some swearing and lots of fighting, and we'll sort of. I don't know, man. Like what you traditionally we mix the whole record. And then you've got your 10 tracks there. Sometimes through the process, it's pretty obvious what you think the opening track should be on a record because it just sounds like that. So I think over the course of mixing and getting that final product and starting to see the whole sound coming together, you start to get an idea of where where things should be. But it, at the end of the day, it still is tricky. I'm sure the four of us will sit down and, and kind of bang sort that out at the end. Now, will you guys shoot a vi any videos for this? It is it is in this this deal that we're working out with Rich and Mike. Uh, it's part of the the deal that they want to do a couple of videos, and it'd be fun because we haven't done one in such a long time. I, that would be we used to do so many videos. Oh, it's crazy, but we haven't done one in ages. That that would be interesting if we do. Well, it's so funny because videos now you can make next to nothing. You can make a video on an iPhone. I mean, it's amazing, you know, thinking how the technology has changed, and you can put that stuff up on YouTube, and all of a sudden people are bringing you like, oh my God, who's this band? The younger people may find you just by the luck of the draw that the video is cool. Yeah. Well, I was having this discussion with uh, Rich. Uh, last week when we were down there, um, I'm saying, well, why would we even do a video? And he said, because, well, for one thing, YouTube is where videos are now. It's not MTV or anything else because this whole business has changed so much. But YouTube is the thing. And you made a good point about the technology. You can have a little handheld camera these days that's amazing, and you can do a very cheap video that looks looks good. So you don't need... 75 grand or 100 grand to shoot a video anymore now with your daughter do you encourage her for music and does she come to you for advice or is she at that age where she knows everything no no she's she's it's a bit of all of that she definitely comes to me for advice i encourage her but she has got um we're not my wife and i don't push her into anything she just she's found her passion and we're encouraging it. If she decides one day she doesn't want to do it anymore, that's fine. But we're not pushing her into anything. She's got the passion for it. So we encourage it. I do tell her, though, that she she's great on stage. She's got a wonderful voice and she looks great. But um, I encourage her to be a songwriter because there's, there's the longevity, uh, especially in a place like Nashville or L.A., your career will only last for so long, but you can be a writer forever. And there's, if you get lucky and have some hits, then that's your, you know, that could that could pay you for a long time. So now, with your kid in from Canada, does, does Canada have their version of a gold record and platinum records? Yeah. Now, what do you what have you done with them? Do you like hang them up? I mean, I always wonder. That'd be like the coolest thing to walk in someone's place. And I recorded an episode uh, when I lived in LA with Greg Hudson, who was in Bad Religion. And to see his gold album, it was 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 so cool. What do you do with your gold albums? Did you ever want to like show them off or anything? Um, well, no. In my house, no, I don't have anything in the main part of my house. But in my studio in the downstairs, I have I still have them up in the wall. Yeah, they're they're quite old, but it's still it's still a you know it's it it's nice you know to think that um, yeah. They're there. They're part of my my history, and it's you know. Now, it's, now, when, it's good. When do you think this album will wrap? When do you think it'll be done? And then, will you decide to try to go on tour with it? Well, 
I would like to think that we could get it done later this year by, I don't know, get it finished by the summertime. I mean, we've got 11 tracks started. We've got to do vocals and a bunch of other things. So we're going, you know, as as quick as we can. Uh, it's it's hard to say with albums because uh, it could come out a year from now or it could come out six months. I've given up predicting that, but the sooner the better for me. But at the end of the day, it'll come out when it's ready and it's good. Well, that's awesome. And, you know, I want to thank you for taking the time. It's funny I when I talked to Rich because that's that drum solo in the opening of my show. That's Rich, him going... You're listening to Cooper talk. And you know Rich's voice is so infectious. But uh, he said he was working with you, and I said, well, i got to get him on my show. So I want to thank you. Now, Now, where can people, do you have a website? I know the band has a website, uh, but do you have a personal website? I don't, my personal website, no, is not up at the moment, but I'm on Facebook. Okay, and then the band is Honeymoon Swoot, Honeymoon, I can't even talk. Honeymoon Suite, the band.com. Well, I want to it's com, but uh, we also are on Facebook. We're much more active on the Honeymoon Suite Facebook page. Okay, and then if people reach out to you, you'll respond, and then maybe as it's getting closer to some of the tracks getting done, you'll maybe give us a little sample. Yeah, and we're on Instagram too. Yeah, of course, when we get closer, like we did with our the last album, the Hands Up record, we will start to put snippets out ahead of the ahead of the release so people can hear what's going on. It's going to be good. That's awesome, man. I want to thank you for taking time, people. So check them out. Go to, go to the website. Go into your Amazon Alexas and just say, play some Honeymoon Suite because you, you always got to listen to the music and it's great music. So please go follow Honeymoon Suite on Facebook. Follow me on Twitter. I'm at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. My website is coopertalk.net. I have over 715 episodes up there. You can also email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. So remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. And don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, and take your vitamins. And I'll talk to you guys next week.